0: Hello everyone, it's November 6th, 2018. This week we say goodbye to Dawn. It has run out of gas. hydrazine to be exact, but we welcome back Soyuz. That staging mishap was all down to a bent pin. This is why spaceflight is scary and why we do a podcast. And off. And we have cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 183 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David.
1: I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. And I, I think at the top of the show we need to talk about Kepler because we talked about it last week. But right after our show went out, pretty much, uh, yeah. they said that Kepler was officially out of gas and they ended the the K2 mission. So I think we're required to mention it. I mean, we're not going to talk much more about it on the show, but. Boy, this was this was a week for ending uh, yeah. space missions, wasn't it? Yeah. Well, oh yeah.
0: A lot of things. And I mean, we almost lost Hubble. It seemed we're not lost it, but you know. Right. It was a little touchy. Yeah, it makes me feel like we yeah, we definitely need to get some new stuff up there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is happening, so.
2: Yeah, we were just saying how we've got not just the, you know, the asteroid missions now, but um New Horizons is doing its flyby on New Year's Day and uh and Insight, I don't think Insight's too far out.
1: From them. No, Insight, Insight's pretty close. Um, we're, we're, gonna, we're actually going to hopefully do a data relay segment specifically on Insight before it lands. I mean, I don't want to jinx it by saying its name, but JWST is hopefully <laughs> going to be flying sooner rather than later.
2: It'll get it up there eventually.
0: Fingers crossed on that one. And I know that we had discussed the, I think you had mentioned the sunk cost fallacy, but I'm willing to just, I am a victim of it, but I don't care because I want to see mm-hmm. it fly. What a waste. And yes, I know that would be the sunk cost fallacy.
1: (laughs) No, I mean, it would still be a waste. Yeah. I don't think you can argue that spending money and not getting a return is a waste.
0: But that's what leads to that kind of mindset where it's just like, well, then let's just pour more money into it. Right. Mm -hmm. And I'm kind of okay with that. I mean, I'm not, but I don't know.
2: Yeah, I'm just thinking about how many many jobs, how many people's careers are just setting up for JWST, mm-hmm. how many people are yeah. designing science cases now so that once JWST starts taking data, boom, they can start trying to answer these this this list of questions that they have. And so there's so much <laughs> uh, riding on it.
0: All the way out to the, what is it, the L2?
1: Yeah, I think it's L2. I
2: never keep track of the numbers. Yeah,
1: Earth Sun L2.
0: It's not going to be an Earth's shadow, is it, the whole time? No. I don't think that um, that's possible.
2: I think L2 is not is spread yeah. out enough. You know what I mean? Like there's mm-hmm. multiple things there. And so just, I think the geometry, the earth and the sun are just so tiny that it wouldn't be just yeah. permanently eclipsed. But I guess if you're at theoretical L2.
1: Well, I think L2 is out so far that the penumbra, yes. right? Cause it's the umbra is the, is the outside. The penumbra is a dark center.
2: I think it's the other way. I think the umbra is the complete and the penumbra is the partial.
1: Yeah. I, I don't think, I don't think there is complete coverage. I think that the earth If you're looking at the sun, I think the earth is actually smaller than the disk of the sun. So you can't get a complete eclipse. Um, But anyway, yeah, we we all know that the L2 is a big Mm -hmm. sloppy orbit. Because it's
0: going to be doing these little loops in space, which are basically perpendicular to the plane. So Orbiting a fake spot. But now I'm trying to remember why it is in the L2. Like, what's the rationale? I mean, I knew, but now I can't remember. Like, why is it out there?
1: It's it's far enough away from the Earth. It needs to be close to the Earth to do communications, but not in Earth or not in low Earth orbit because it's uh, too noisy and too hot. I think
2: actually. Yeah, cooling it down is a big deal. But I don't know why though. L2 instead of something like. You know, heliocentric Earth trailing. Like, I don't know. Maybe there isn't. Probably because it keeps
1: it closer. Because, I mean, like, you're going to lose it if it's Earth trailing. Yeah,
2: that's a good point.
0: I think I do remember now it is because there would be too much infrared coming off of Earth. And so yeah. they can't get it cool yeah. enough. And so it has to be further yeah, out. You'd
1: have to, like, have Earth and the sun on the same side of the vehicle. So,
0: yeah, that's the current state of cool spacecraft in space. Um, so let's move on to some past spacecraft <laughs> in space. Uh, <laughs> to this weekend's spaceflight history. And looks like we have some winners
1: our winners this week are gabriel norris who I, i'm pretty sure has guessed correctly like four or five times but for some reason the name looks new to me <laughs> hi gabriel <laughs> uh patrick mcguire who's definitely not new taylor marks valentine frank law loving ben hallert and noah purdy uh congrats you guys so the clue for this week was something about first tries rarely go well this week in spaceflight history is november 5th 2013 yes it's it's pretty recent it was the launch of mongol yan also known as mom the mars orbiter mission and i like both of those names They they both feel comfortable to me so here's here's why the clue is the clue. ISRO was the first space organization or space uh, administration to ever reach Mars on their first try. Uh, they're the fourth country overall, U.S., Russia... And then um, ESA also did a Mars mission, uh, and then uh, and then India goes and they did it their first try. Um, people talk about Mars being cursed, and you know the like the Mars curse and things like that. And Mars doesn't eat probes particularly harder than any other planet. It's just <laughs> that Mars is a really good first target. So it's kind of like how you know most uh, most car crashes happen within what like. Five miles of your home. It's not because your home is dangerous. It's just that you spend most of your time there. So, uh, being able to get to Mars on your first try is really, really important, especially because Mongolian had some issues, uh, but it it managed to get there. Uh, It had a 20 day launch window, which should seem a little bit long for going to Mars. And if you are familiar with how you get to Mars, uh, the Having a 20-day launch window should clue you in to how they did it. Um, They didn't have a single Mars injection burn or Mars transfer burn. They actually did seven apogee raising maneuvers before they did their uh, interplanetary burn. And so having those seven giant ever-expanding loops around the Earth gives you a lot of flexibility in when you actually launch because you can tweak things as you go. And then once they left Earth orbit, they had three TCMs, Trajectory Correction Maneuvers. They had four TCMs that they had planned and three that they actually performed because um, they went there so accurately that the second one uh, wasn't needed. Uh, Mongolian is sort of a familiar shape. It actually shares... Uh, the same spacecraft bus as Chandrayaan 1, which went to the moon. And it's kind of a cute little guy. It's uh, a cube uh, with a communications dish on one side and a solar array on the other. The cube itself is mostly taken up by fuel tanks, as you'd expect. Um, it actually has a cylinder that runs uh, vertically through the tube, and there are two spherical propellant tanks that go in there. And so on the top of Mongolian there's a dome, which I always thought was a science experiment, but it's actually the top of one of the propellant tanks. And then I, I love its little solar array. So, you know, most solar arrays fold out away from uh, the spacecraft uh, in sort of a a scroll kind of configuration, but Mongoyan has got three that fold laterally to the spacecraft in sort of a book configuration. so if you imagine holding a book to your chest and then flopping it down in front of you and then opening it up so that you can read it that 's kind of the way that it does it with uh, three panels, so I guess it 's more like a a letter uh, arrangement but out at Mars. These three solar panels at max generate 840 watts, which I I don't know how people get away with so little electricity. (laughs) It's really cool. (laughs) On board, it has a couple of science payloads. It has LAP, which is the Lehman Alpha Photometer. And it's a photometer that measures the relative abundance of deuterium and hydrogen uh, in the upper atmosphere. So uh, Mongolian doesn't dip as deep into the atmosphere as, say, Maven does – Um, but it does, uh, it does brush through the upper atmosphere. Um, it also has, oh boy, uh, MSM, which is the methane sensor for Mars, uh, which is kind of a snafu. It was assembled correctly and installed correctly. No issues there. Just one little problem. It wasn't designed properly. Um, and so it's actually incapable of detecting methane, um, which is a very Kerbal space program problem to have. Um, just, uh, we didn't build it right or we, we didn't design it right. Built it properly. Great, great construction techniques. Just, great execution. <laughs> yeah. Just didn't design it properly. And so it's actually really cool is MSN, uh, got repurposed as an albedo mapper. I don't know how they did it, but they did. Then there's also Menka, which is the Mars exopheric neutral composition analyzer and menka is actually a uh, a quadrupole mass analyzer so it's a mass spectrometer this is pretty cool it can measure from one to three hundred atomic mass units with a unit mass resolution so if you shoot anything through it it can tell you exactly how heavy it is can't tell you exactly what it is um but mm-hmm. you know for many given uh molecular weights that tells us what it is you know especially if you mm-hmm are in a familiar location like mars um so you know really nice uh mass spectroscopy uh, it also has TIS, tis the thermal infrared imaging spectrometer why is that tis and not tis <laughs> should, should have two eyes but they spell it tis um, and then also the mars color camera the mcc and the mars color camera returned some very very beautiful pictures And in fact some of my favorite images of mars are from the mcc because they are solid like solid mars photos like red marble kind of photos that are really gorgeous Mm -hmm. and they flew on mongolian which is like you know a baby step i mean it you know it's impressive but essentially it's a it's a baby step and uh it's so cool that humanity as a species has gotten to the point where we can uh, or that, that new countries can just like go to mars you know like countries that haven't ever gone to another planet before. I could just go to Mars and take beautiful photos. Makes me happy. And I have a clue for next week. Um, This was written by David, and I love it. Thank you, David. David, my co-host, not David in the chat room. There's no David in the chat room, but I kind of, I said your your name as if you're in the chat room. Next week in 1933, the clue is no cranberry juice for 200,000 miles.
0: So, yeah, (laughs) I hope you like that clue. I feel almost kind of, that's a weird clue, but I I think we'll get some correct answers. Um, (laughs) I think we'll
1: get a lot of correct answers. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So if you think you know what that's in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag This Week SF and good luck. First up in the news Dawn is dead. Um,. So this is a crazy mission that just did more than I think anyone thought possible with a spacecraft, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. in the further reaches of the solar system, just kind of just whizzing about. But eventually, it will eventually run out of fuel. And that's specifically what has happened. So no more hydrazine, huh?
2: So I think what happened was, like from the perspective here on Earth, is they've just lost communication with it. And then they kind of tried to rule out some other things. and. The only thing that seems to be able to explain why they've lost communication is that it must have run out of its hydrazine, which they expected it to run out of about now anyway
1: they they expected it to run out in the middle of last month, so yeah we're we're past the uh the fuel light coming on we're past the Needle pegging on zero like this is, but yeah, there's a great quote from Mark Raymond who said, uh, to within our current uncertainty, there's zero usable hydrazine remaining.
2: I love that line. I almost put it in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: That's, it's such a Mark line.
2: But anyway, yeah. So, right. So Dawn, it did what I imagine most of the public thinks, you know, space travel should be like, or is like, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just kind of zooting around from one object to another, Right, just going Can along. we revisit
1: that that verb? What, zootin'? <laughs> I
2: love it. I feel like that's, uh, you know, it's got its little ion uh, thrusters and, yeah,
1: zo- zootin' around. I mean, thing. it visited, you know, three bodies. So, like, yeah, that's definitely tooling around there.
0: According to Urban Dictionary, zoot is a marijuana cigarette.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> we
2: learn something new. So yeah, um, so Dawn uh, was originally scheduled for a June 2007 launch. So this is over a decade ago, as of this recording. And uh, delayed part deliveries, a broken crane at the launch pad, bad weather, range tracking problems, all conspired to delay the launch uh, back about a month. And that pushed it back even further because it got to the point where they were like, well, Phoenix, which was a Mars lander uh which actually the u of a here was kind of it was the first time i believe that a university was kind of running a nasa mission or at least you know they were the principal investigators on it and so uh, because of them trying to make room for phoenix which was launching on august 4th they kicked dawn further back to september and where it finally launched aboard delta 2 after a weather delay It it seemed cursed, at least, getting it launched. There was a weather delay. A ship sailed into the exclusion area, so they had to wait for, you know, them to chase it out of there. And uh, also the ISS ended up kind of flying overhead close enough that they had to wait for the collision avoidance window to pass. But ultimately, it got launched. And the really cool thing about, right, Dawn, one of the multiple notable things is that it was the first uh, purely exploratory NASA mission to use ion propulsion engines. And so... You know, this was before my time on the show, right? But you guys <laughs> did a <laughs> what sounds like an awesome interview with Mark Raymond um, about, you know, these uh, three xenon ion engines that Dawn was using to basically take it, you know, after the third stage was done. That's how it got to uh, uh, its targets. And so, uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Um, I guess you could put a link to, uh, the actual episode number in the show notes.
1: Uh so it's yeah, episode 75 and there is a link in the show notes. So what was Dawn, what was
2: its its goal? Basically, it was to visit asteroids or at least objects in the asteroid belt. And so it had two targets, uh 4 Vesta and 1 Ceres, where the numbers is basically the numbers are the order of their discovery in the asteroid belt. And so Ceres was, I think it was discovered after Uranus, but it it was the first ninth planet, if I remember my ordering correctly. (laughs) And uh, yeah. So it's it's zooting on over to Vesta, uh, reached it in 2011 in orbit. And uh, got into a really tight, you know, 210 kilometer mapping orbit. And you can see these objects from the ground, but, you know, the level of detail you're going to get is just nothing compared to what you can do with a spacecraft right there. And they're both interesting objects. Vesta is uh, the second largest asteroid in the uh, second largest object in the asteroid belt with about a 525 kilometer diameter uh, size, although I think that's more its mean radius because it's a bit oblong in its shape. And it makes up just shy of 10% of the asteroid belt's mass, so quite big. And it's known as one of the last rocky protoplanets that are left in our solar system. So basically, right, the way the planets all formed was, you know, through this sort of snowballing of smaller things clumping together to form bigger things, clumping together to form bigger things. And the biggest ones are the kind of proper planets that we know of. And then the little small leftover planetesimals are just the asteroids and the comets. But uh, Vesta got big enough to actually, you know, have its interior differentiate. So it's got a, the heavier elements sank and it's got an a metal-rich core and then a rocky outer part. And so this is kind of what our planets looked like before they became, you know, much bigger. Vesta is much smaller than any of our, uh, any of the interior planets. So anyway, it, it was very cool to, like, check this out and, you know, learn some things about the surface. And it has one of the more interesting craters, I think, in the solar system called Rhea Silvia. Are you guys familiar with this one? I don't think so. It's one of the largest impact craters in the solar system. Um, and basically just something slammed into Vesta so hard that it left a crater that basically has 90% of the diameter of Vesta's diameter. Uh,
1: of Vesta, so, yeah. 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 So it
2: covers like most of the planet.
1: Not, this much. is so weird. Cause like I've seen this, but I didn't realize it was an impact crater. And like, when you look at it, it totally is an impact crater. It even has the mm. peak in the middle. Yeah. And that peak is, uh, about 22 kilometers high. Yeesh. So.
2: Depending on measures, you know, possibly higher than Olympus Mons, uh, which is right Mount Olympus on Mars, and so yeah, yeah, it's it's a really interesting uh, object, Raya Sylvia. And so you know, after mapping Vesta and doing its thing, it uh, Dawn left in September of 2012 and headed to its next target, Ceres, and entered orbit there on March of 2015. Now, uh, planetary scientists would yell at me because Ceres isn't an asteroid; technically, it's a dwarf planet. But basically, it's just the biggest asteroid. And so, um, it can, to give you a sense of scale, it's got one-third of the asteroid belt's mass. So it's, you know, unlike, you know, it's much bigger and unlike any other object in there. It's, yeah, it's a dwarf planet, uh, like Pluto. And Ceres is a pretty interesting uh, object as well, in that uh, it's two most notable things, I would say. Is that the first thing uh, that was noticed was the... Uh, akator crater which is this white little patch uh mm-hmm. on in the middle of a crater and so i guess i guess the crater is the crater but there, there's a white patch in the middle of it that people were immediately like you know what the heck is this is this snow is it salt
1: no people were immediately like is this aliens yeah right <laughs> <laughs> that's true xkcd had a, a
2: wonderful little comet where when they got the little comic where when they got closer to it, it was basically like, you know, a stamp, you know, inspected by alien number 22570 <laughs> or something like that. But yeah, um, it turns out they're salts, likely from hydrothermal activity. And so the idea is that Ceres might harbor a subsurface ocean, which is awesome, right? You know, a water ocean, liquid water, but below the surface. So kind of behind, underneath its icy mantle, rocky icy mantle, and the sort of more rocky Iron denser core. And so the idea might be that some of this activity is actually, you know, making its way to the surface and depositing these salts. So that's pretty amazing. And the final orbit, uh, they had the opportunity to just take off early and head to another asteroid, uh, 145 Adiona, but they argued to stay at series because, mm-hmm. you know, there was just more that we could do there and it would be just a better science case.
1: Yeah, I think we talked about that when the decision was made because we wanted to cheer for both sides, you know? Yeah. And 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 right, you you could
2: make the the case for both. And, you know, it would have been awesome, I'm sure, if we checked out uh, adiona but their final orbit the fact that they spent more time there and they decided to get a little wild at the end and got within <laughs> 20 kilometers of the surface so there are some amazingly high resolution images of the white patches in the akator crater and so i recommend you know you go check those out because i didn't even realize like the last time i looked at dawn images i didn't realize uh that we had those high resolution ones But, yeah, so Dawn, you know, it was was an amazing spacecraft. It was the first one to visit a dwarf planet once it got to Ceres. Its observations of Vesta basically kept Vesta from being uh, promoted into that sort of dwarf Mm -hmm. planet category. And so, um, yeah. Planet
1: killer. Yeah, right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that's Dawn. You know, it did a great job it did its thing and so it will be missed but already people are thinking about future missions to sort of you know even a a future missions to objects in the asteroid belt and uh, the Ceres polar lander is the only one that I could find that is targeting either Ceres or Vesta and this is one that a Franco-Italian aerospace manufacturer Thales Alenia space? Thales Alenia. Yeah, Talos Alenia. Thank you. Uh, that they're interested in actually landing something uh, on the surface of Ceres. So series. cool. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dawn. We appreciate it. The
0: um the cool thing about the Dawn spacecraft was just that it was like solar powered and it had these ion thrusters. And I think it was, I don't know if it still holds the record, but I believe it's it had the most Delta V of any spacecraft. I don't remember the yeah. exact nature of the conversation, but I remember talking to Mark Raymond and he had said that it was just very efficient because oh. obviously those types of engines, you get great specific impulse and if it's solar powered then uh you don't ever have to worry about your source of power so it just kept on going and going and going and i guess because it was going into orbit around you know these little planetesimals it's not as though it requires a huge amount of thrust and so that kind of you know worked to its advantage so mm-hmm. i would like to see something like that but maybe even scaled up a little bit more i mean how cool would that be to see something that's just roaming around the asteroid belt for maybe i don't know several decades i don't know if that's possible but that would be so cool that
1: would be wild so so i don't know what don's delta v record was at the end but i remember like back when we started this show i think uh it had already uh passed 10 kilometers a second yeah um, i believe you're right yeah and then uh what's really cool is that don is actually not going to crash into series there's actually a a really high chance that it's going to be there for what like 50 years or something before it crashes because they ended up i think they raised the the periapsis high enough that it's going to be there for a while so well i mean you know if we send something else out there maybe it'll get to see dawn still flying around maybe it can go squirt dawn with some uh some rocket exhaust enough to (laughs) nudge it out of its orbit and we can watch it crash into the surface uh, and get to observe that impactors are a big deal, yeah, yeah. I and like you've that. you've got an impactor already there, like a huge amount of mass. All you gotta do is just nudge it. Could
2: you imagine being though, like on that mission, and like, yeah, so we're designing something to take your spacecraft and shove it into <laughs> <laughs> series
1: and kind of destroy everything you built. I I think uh, I think the Dawn team would be excited. I think they would like.
2: I that. think they would, yeah. <laughs> but still, there's something about that. So
0: moving on to our second topic here, the one that I thought we wouldn't talk about again. Uh, one last. <laughs> (laughs) little thing on ms10 uh that soyuz failure we now know i guess we know well specifically what the cause was and we have some really cool video to watch because uh that has been released and it's really neat to look at kind of scary but um yeah (laughs) so apparently this this whole failure of this booster was caused by a bent pin and from what it looks like it's not much of a bend but it was enough to bring down an entire six
1: degrees six degrees and 45 minutes just a just barely a little little bump. So yeah, so so this video that came out, we'll link to the video in the show notes. But I'm also going to link to Scott Manley's breakdown of the video because he actually slows it down and goes frame by frame and kind of discusses. Um, what he thinks he sees, and I, I think he's correct. He qualifies what he doesn't know pretty well. And one of the interesting things about that video is that it appears to be missing frames after the explosion. There's a period where one frame you're looking down at the Earth, and the next frame you're looking, you know, up at the horizon. Um, and so it seems like you know they dropped some frames in there and uh, and just shortened it to get you back to the action instead of freezing on a on a frozen frame for a little bit. And then the the really cool thing is that we found out that they actually recovered the booster. Um they were able to get to it before locals uh were able to start pulling copper wiring out of it and oh, uh sure. and they were they were able to recover uh a lot of the spacecraft but you know in particular the failed booster. And so the hypothesis that we had presented a few shows ago that that the oxygen vent up at the top of the booster failed to failed to open was correct. We were kind of going, okay, well, is this a sticky valve? Like what's going on? Well, it turns out that the valve actually uh, was not at fault. The valve uh, stayed closed as it was supposed to stay closed. Um, It was a sensor that didn't trigger. So uh, this sensor is inside the upper ball joint. So the way that the boosters are mounted on the vehicle, they've got a, a ball and socket joint up at the top that can rotate or, you know, it it can move around, but that's where most of the thrust goes through this this uh ball and socket. And then at the bottom there are two uh, struts, um, connect, um, to the vehicle. And that's where the pyrotechnics are. They're all down to the bottom. The top is just this joint that's held together by weight and then later by thrust. Um, but in in the top of that ball valve sticking straight out of the top is a pin and it's a pretty chunky pin and it's, I, I believe a rotation sensor. So I think when, uh, the ball and joint or the ball and socket joint rotates as the bottom of the booster gets kicked out uh during separation i think there's a point where the top of this uh of the ball comes away from uh, the inside of the socket it it might even be like a camming kind of action, you know it acts like a cam, and that lets the pin come out of its socket a little bit uh, i'm not I'm not exactly sure how the mechanics actually work there, but the pin is used to tell the booster that it's beginning to separate, and then it opens the valve and starts venting oxygen and interestingly enough, the valve actually Did open after it impacted on the center core. So in the video, you can actually see it venting liquid oxygen in those big clouds. But anyway, this uh, vehicle or the the booster was mishandled and the pin was bent, like we said, by you know just seven degrees, a little under seven degrees, Um, and so it jammed and it didn't. I'm assuming it didn't pop out as it should, and so the booster didn't know that it was separating properly and never open that valve um, and then it impacted on the center core and it tore the center core open. And when you look at the footage, you can see the center core has got a big old gash in it and it's venting its own propellants, which is really uh, f- very, very far from nominal. I'd say. <laughs> right. And so all this made it really difficult to tell from the ground footage what had actually happened because the booster was venting propellant the way it should. The center core was venting propellant when it shouldn't but it kind of obscured things. And so I'm I'm really impressed that we were able to figure out not not me David and Dennis but <laughs> we as you know as amateur an amateur spaceflight community could figure out what happened. Um so I'm guessing that there was a leak somewhere. I think somebody inside Roscosmos leaked this and that's how we had such a very precise or you know very close oh. to reality uh guess in the community so early on. There there we go. We figured out what's going on. Um, so, how many Soyuz flights are there before uh, MS-11 flies? I think there's, I think there's at least one, maybe two. Two or three, actually, I believe. Two or three. Okay. So we'll we'll fly this vehicle again before we put people on it, uh, but we are going to put people back on it. We're not going to have to decrew station unless something else goes wrong. Uh, knock on wood. And yeah, so there you go. Hopefully, that's the end of us talking about MS-10. <laughs> <laughs> yep.
2: Yeah,
0: I think so. Let's do some short and sweet then. What's our first one, Dennis?
2: So more asteroid news. OSIRIS-REx captures its first view of Bennu. After two years en route to asteroid Bennu, the sample return mission OSIRIS-REx has taken its first images of its target. Using one of three onboard cameras, the first full view of Bennu was constructed from eight images at a distance of 330 kilometers. Some commentators have noted the superficial similarity between Bennu and a much larger asteroid Ryugu, which is currently visited by JAXA's Hayabusa 2 spacecraft. OSIRIS-REx is slated to enter orbit around Bennu in December of this year, 2018, and ultimately to return samples to Earth in 2023.
0: Starman is now beyond Mars. On Friday, SpaceX tweeted the current location of Starman in his cherry red tesla roadster his current location is about 2.4 million miles from earth beyond the orbit of mars anyone interested in tracking starman's journey can go to whereisroadster.com the tracking data is provided by the jpl horizon team and will be accurate for a few more years since the roadster isn't transmitting any signals its location is really more of a prediction which will become increasingly inaccurate in years to come though we will always have a good approximate guess of where to find starman so yeah eventually we won't know.
2: And now I've got that song stuck in my head. Yeah,
0: good song. It's a great song. All right, so there's no, we have no correction burns to speak of this week, so we did well. Uh, so let's just move on to upcoming launches. We got three of them, and what's our first one here, Dennis?
2: So our first launch is a Soyuz STB with a upper stage frigate, uh, which will be carrying the MetOp C series of three polar orbiting meteorological satellites developed by ESA. The launch will be uh, on November 7th at 004227 UTC uh, with an instantaneous launch window launching from the Soyuz launch complex in Kourou slash Cinemary.
1: Then after that we have a launch that I'm very excited for. It's Pegasus XL Flying uh, Icon. This is delayed, right? We talked about this last week. Yes.
2: Uh, I think it couple weeks maybe. So
1: I, I don't know why I, I love Pegasus so much, even though you can't watch it launch live. Um, they just, there's just no good video, no good way to get video back. But the uh, the video after the launch is always fantastic. Um, so yeah, we, we talked about this last week, uh, Icon's uh, a weather satellite. Um, this is launching now on November 7th at 0805 UTC. Um, and it has a window that extends for a half hour to 0930 UTC.
0: And lastly, on November 11th it is electron with its business time. Hopefully, we'll see. It's been business time for a while now, so maybe this is the actual <laughs> this this will be the actual time of business. So this will be
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it like they it was originally started was supposed to fly in April, right?
0: I'm thinking, yeah, I think it's been yeah. a long time. So yeah, that's April, May. Yeah, that's like 6 months. So yeah. one problem after another, but I'm going to be excited to see this thing actually lift off. Mm just because it's... The
2: anticipation's <laughs> been building <Yeah>. up. <laughs>
0: It's been building up for quite some time now. This is their first commercial launch, and this will be on the 11th, as I said, uh, at 0300 UTC through 0700 UTC. So it still has that nice long four-hour launch window. So they have plenty of time. I'm hoping it goes off without a hitch, but if not, we'll probably see some kind of interesting video of, like, another on-pad abort, which I believe last time made a very loud noise as Mm -hmm. they shut down those engines. Scared the birds. So, yeah, let's hope we see that on November 11th. That'd be cool. And that is lifting off from Rocket Lab Launch Complex 1, which uh, that's on the Mejia Peninsula, I Ma- believe.
2: Yeah, something like
0: that. Yeah. Alrighty, those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And that means that it is time to deorbit the show. So we will do so, and we would like to thank
2: Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 enough Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the
1: fly. If you want to support the show too, please leave us a review wherever you Listen or visit the OrbitalMechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources.
0: For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission
2: patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can talk about the show with other listeners on Twitter and Reddit. We're Orbital Podcast on both. And you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com.
0: So that's all, and we will see you next week on orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody.